0: Don't have a seat, and uh, if you have your Bible with you, uh, open to the book of Esther. And so, whether you have a Bible or a tablet or a phone, uh, open to the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible and you don't have a Bible app on your phone, we have Bibles in the back of the sanctuary. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know where Esther is, probably the easiest way to get there is to check your table of contents or flip to the book of Psalms, which is one of the largest books right in the middle of the Bible, and then turn left. If you get to Psalms, turn back to the left, you'll hit the book of Job, and then uh, you'll find yourself in Esther. And uh, this morning, as we begin a new sermon series in the book of Esther, I ask you to bear with me here for maybe the first 10 to 15 minutes as we uh, frame out <coughs> both uh, the book of Esther and this upcoming sermon series that we'll be moving through over the course of the next uh, five weeks. Now, the book of Esther is, uh, it really, it, it's a fascinating Book. It's, it's different than really any of the other books of the Bible in some respects, and in other ways, it's just like uh, every other book of the Bible. But it's a story that chronicles God's providential care for His people uh, after their captivity, but while the people are still in Persia. And so, here's just a couple of things, just as we think about the book as a whole, the book of Esther as a whole. Um, r- really, a couple of things that, that are maybe interesting facts about the book of Esther, maybe distinguishing. Um, aspects or facts about the book of Esther here's the the most prominent one is that nowhere nowhere in the book of Esther is God referenced or mentioned this is the only book of the Bible that does not make a direct reference or direct mention of God and yet you could argue that the presence of God and the work of God is is unmistakable in, in the book of Esther as it is anywhere in the entirety of the scriptures but you will not find a reference to God in this book. Uh, this book is also not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. Now, there are other Old Testament books that find their, uh, that, that same reality to be true of them. But Esther is uh, not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. It's one of only two books that are uh, named or titled after women. The other being, tell me, Ruth. Ruth. All right, good. We're all awake and paying attention. That's good. Um, One of the things that's fascinating about the book of Esther, and we won't see this till we get towards the end of the book, but in the latter part of the the book of Esther, we're introduced to something called the Feast of Purim. And the Feast of Purim is one of two festivals that the Jews, that it wasn't instituted in the Mosaic law, it wasn't even instituted um, in, in the reign of the kings. It's one of two festivals that was instituted after the exile and is still practiced today. The other being Hanukkah. And so there's, there's something substantial that's going to happen here that the Jewish people will celebrate moving forward from uh, the book of Esther. And then finally, this book, the entirety of the narrative of the, the book of Esther is actually unfolding in Persia. It's not happening in the promised land. It's not happening in Canaan. This is in another part of uh, the world. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Esther. Uh, many scholars and commentators would advocate for either Ezra being the author of the book of Esther or Mordecai being the book of of Esther. Um, And if you don't know who either of those guys are, Ezra wrote uh, another book of the Bible. Mordecai is a key figure in this book. And so in a few weeks, you'll have a pretty good idea of who he is. Um, But we don't know for sure. Uh, Really, the only thing that most scholars and commentators agree on with respect to the author is that Esther didn't write it. Um, So we we don't know for sure who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. Some people think that it was as late as uh, the the, the mid fifth century B.C. Other people think that it was written as late as 100 B.C., a bottom line we simply don't know. And while there's some debate over the purpose as to the, why someone even wrote the book... Uh, Really, guys all land, or commentators, scholars, uh, all land around the idea of God's providential care for his people. So that kind of gives you just at least a a quick 35,000-foot survey of the book of Esther, and maybe some key pieces of what's going on. I don't want to give you everything, because we're going to spend the next five weeks walking through the book. Now, let me just talk for a minute about our sermon series. And and for the next uh, five weeks, moving through the book of Esther, we've titled uh, the the sermon series, God at Work. And you might be going, wait a second, didn't you just tell me that God is not even referenced in this book? I did. And so you might be saying, well, that's kind of odd. Why would you title a sermon series God at Work when God's not even referenced in the book uh, to be working? Well, because um, it's obvious as you move through the book of Esther that that's exactly what God is doing. Is that God is at work. That he is working in and through uh, his people. In fact, here's just a few things. I just want to give you at the outset of our series things to... Uh, Maybe just make note of or pay attention for that we're going to see in the coming five weeks with respect to God being at work. First of all, make note of this, that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Now, for some of you, you need to be reminded of that because there's something going on in your life right now that you're, you're wrestling with that reality. And yet in the book of Esther, unmistakable is the reality that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Every aspect of your life, my life, of everyone's life, Uh, similar to that, uh, tied to that, you and I can have confidence that God is at work in every situation in our life. Some of you have some really good things that are unfolding in your life right now. And so it's easy in those things to be like, I can see how God is working in that. Some of you just have some horrendous things. Some of you have had just brutal weeks this week. And what you need to hear right now is God is at work in that situation. God is accomplishing something good in the midst. of. I'm not saying that necessarily what happened was good. But I promise you, God is going to accomplish something good from that. Thirdly, what we'll see in the book of Esther, uh, something that we don't like to talk a whole lot about in our day and age, but I think it's really crucial for us to talk about, uh, it's this, is that God deals with and more importantly, God judges sin and wickedness. One of the the, one of the most tricky aspects of the book of Esther is, is what do you do with the slaughter that unfolds? Well, that's really, really hard to answer if we want to abandon the biblical doctrine of sin and that God judges sin. But honestly, it's pretty easy to address. If we want to get at one of the core tenets of what God's word teaches over and over and over again. In fact, in the next two weeks, we're going to see a whole lot of sin and wickedness in the text. Here's the final thing with respect to our series and really will begin to move us towards where we're going this morning. It's this, it's that God's favor, the favor that God bestows upon you and I, that God's favor in our life is a source of blessing for others. God is going to bestow favor in your life. He's going to bestow favor in my life. And the means for that, the purpose for that, is to be a blessing in other people's lives, ultimately for the magnification of God. And so we we come to Esther and uh, let me just maybe briefly put this in its historical context as to what's going on. If you were to go back to the time of David or Solomon, you have kind of the golden age of Israel. And, and that was the time to be an Israelite. That, that was the, 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 the high water mark for the nation of Israel. Uh, after Solomon, uh, there's some family squabbles over who's king and you have a divided kingdom, the northern and southern kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah, Uh, the northern kingdom, ten tribes uh, taken captive and deported by the Assyrians in 722. Not one righteous king over the course of about 200 years. And so they're gone. Judah fares a little bit better because interspersed amongst the majority of unrighteous kings, they have a few righteous kings. And so they hold out a little bit longer, but it's uh, late 6th century BC uh, when they're taken captive and deported by the Babylonians. And then you have 70 years where they're in captivity. And then this guy named Cyrus shows up and decrees that they can go back into the land and to begin to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the temple and and the city. And so uh, Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle uh, what begins to happen at that point in time. And so over the course of like the next 50, 60 years, that's what's happening in the promised land. The book of Esther is a contemporary to Ezra and Nehemiah. This is what's happening in Persia. While guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and the people that have returned are rebuilding Jerusalem. That's where this book unfolds. And so with all this now, let's turn our attention. Uh, Esther 1 and most of Esther 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And um, uh, we're going to cover a lot of real estate uh, in, in that when you deal with narrative text, when you deal with, with um, stories in the Bible, sometimes you're going to move through more uh, content or material, uh, sometimes just because it's a single unit. And so that will be the case uh, really for the majority of our time in this sermon series we'll have one week where we'll do just one chapter but we'll have a few weeks where we're doing three chapters and really it's because you got to deal with them as a unit because it's all part of the story but when we look at Esther 1 and we look at Esther 2 just be honest with you this is kind of an odd passage to preach Um, because there's just some really disturbing and troubling things that are going on here Uh, there's some things that we're just going to scratch our head at uh, and so um, and a lot of what 's happening in Esther One and two is God is is, is, is setting up the story in terms of what 's going to unfold throughout the rest of the book and so this morning uh, we 'll walk through the text and and there 'll be more of, of, of me maybe explaining <clears throat> what 's going on up front and we 'll do more of the uh, <clears throat> application if you will, with a connection to your life and my life on the back end. so hang in there. Uh, A little bit more information up front, more of the application on the back end. Uh, But before we do it, let me do this. Let me just pray for us. Uh, And as always, we'll pray for another church in the area, and then we'll begin to walk through this text. Pray with me. (coughs) Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you for the book of Esther. And God, I thank you for the reality that um, throughout history you have providentially cared for your people. So God, I pray this morning that as we begin to walk through this book, as we begin to see this this story and and, and the drama unfold and um, some things that are really exciting, other things that are just really troubling and difficult, that in all of it, we would see your hand at work. Uh, God, that we would be able to um, follow you, uh, to respond to you, to be obedient to you uh, in all that you would call us uh, to do and be with respect to what we see here in these coming weeks. And God, this morning as we look at this troubling account of King Ashawaris and, 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 and the, the, the removal of Queen Vashti. And, and then by your providential hand, moving Esther to the throne. God, we pray that you would speak into our lives. And God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Josh Swanson and for Hope Church. God, thank you for my brother and my friend and the gospel. Pray for him as he's preaching this morning that you would speak uh, powerfully through Pastor Josh and that you would be ministering uh, in and through that body of believers as well. And God, for us, would you just have your way with us here this morning? Would you do the things that only you could do? And when you do so for your glory, for your purpose, and for your name's sake, we just pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, well, title of the message this morning is Winning Favor. Winning Favor. And uh, main idea or or the thrust of where I believe God's word is going to move us this morning is tied to this idea right here. Listen, listen, God is at work in securing favor for his people to accomplish his purposes. Did you catch that? God is at work in securing favor for his people to accomplish his purposes. And and what we're going to see specifically here is that God is going to use something sinful and wicked and he's going to produce something good out of it. Which is pretty similar to what Joseph said to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. Remember that? After they'd sold him into slavery. And uh, uh, after all that God had moved him through and brought him to second in command, really as a providential means to spare what was the family that would ultimately become the nation of Israel. They weren't even a nation. They were just a family at that point in time. And Joseph and his brother's father pass away. And the brothers are freaking out, going, well, what's he going to do now? And Joseph's comment to them is what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God is at work in securing favor for his people to accomplish his purposes. Just so there's no confusion, let me just be clear in saying this, that God working good in a situation is very different than saying um, that all things are good. Because what we're going to see this morning, a lot of what we're going to see this morning and a lot of what we're going to see in the book of Esther is not good. It's not honorable. It's not um, righteous. It's not pleasing to the Lord. But what God is going to do in a redemptive way is he is going to work good out of that. So we would not say that the king is good. We would not say that King Asherah is good. But what we would say is that God will use the king to bring about good. And so... Just begin to walk through the text. I've got really two main points in terms of the text. A third point that you probably see in your sermon notes in terms of what does this mean for us and you know how do we respond to this. But with respect to the text, two main points and really what the author does in uh, Esther 1 and 2 is he's going to contrast two characters here. The first character being King Ashuerus, and the second character being uh, Esther, who will eventually at the end of our time this morning will be Queen Esther. And so let's just begin to walk through this, and, and really the contrast is around this idea of favor. And so, with King Ashuerus, King Ashuerus, what, what, what he wants to do is he is seeking the favor of man. And so, starting in 1 1 through 2 4, let's just begin to walk through this text. We're told this. Now, in the days of Ashuerus, which some of your translations might say Xerxes, Uh, but in the the ESV, uh, they refer to him as Asherus. In the days of Asherus, the Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Asherus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, now the author gets a little bit more pointed in terms of where we're at. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persian media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Notice this. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So, so, so we're introduced to the king and we're introduced, to, or we're told it's the third year of his reign. And uh, he has this huge kingdom from India to Ethiopia. To in fact, in his day and age, uh, that would have spanned span most of the known world. It's believed that at the height of King Ashur's reign, there was upwards of 50 million people uh, within his kingdom. He was hands down the most powerful man on the planet while he lived. Uh, and he would have been viewed by the people uh, that were under him much like a god would have been viewed. And he knew it. And he lived that way. I mean, this guy truly is a piece of work. I mean, he's throwing a party for 180 days. And then look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a small, uh, both small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So we're five verses into this book. We're in the second party. Okay. This one, this one is, is short, relatively speaking. It's only a week long. And notice, just notice. Really what we see here, first of all, is the king's excess and pomp. He's seeking the favor of man. We see his excess and pomp. Look at verse 6 and, and following, describing all of the surrounding aspects of this party. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rods and marble pillars. I wonder if any of you have this in your living room. And also couches of gold and silver. You might be really fired up about that new couch you bought. Do you have a, co- a couch of gold Probably not comfortable to sit on, but worth an awful lot, right? And so couches of gold and silver, and it goes on and look at uh, other things on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. I mean, just this beautiful, ornate, uh, opulent setting. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, just in case you're wondering, this is always a bad idea when it comes to drinking. There is no compulsion. You drink as much as you want. You drink as often as you want. You drink as long as you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And we're told in verse 9, while all of this is unfolding, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuarius. So she's over, um, probably being quite diplomatic uh, in her place, where King Ashuarius is throwing a bender of all benders for the entire kingdom. You have the king's excess and pomp, right? This idea of seeking the favor of man, the king's excess and his pomp. Now you might be like, hey, what what, what does that mean? What's significant about that? Well, here's what's significant. Is what the king is actually doing in this moment is he's taking everything that he has. He is leveraging all of this to impress his guests to accomplish his purposes and his will. You might be like, where do you see that in the text? We'll go back to verse 3. It says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And then this next phrase, I think, is really, really crucial. The army of Persia and Media. See, what a lot of people believe that King Ashuerus was doing here is he was trying to leverage this banquet, this feast, this party. He was trying to seek favor um, to convince the army to go and engage in a military conflict with Greece. Because he was, uh, he, it's believed that he wanted to avenge um, a military defeat that his father had suffered previously. And so he's leveraging all these things to butter these guys up so that they'll agree to his demand to go and to fight the Greeks. I want to go and do this, and and in order to do that, I need to convince you that I'm great. And so here, let me show you how great I am. And so he's seeking the favor of man by using the favor that God has bestowed upon him, but he's doing so for personal benefit and gain. And now notice how this plays out. Look at verse 10 and following. So on the seventh day, right at the end of this second feast, and then this next, this next line is just a really generous description of what's actually happened in the last week. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, this guy's drunk out of his skull. And so are all his advisors. So he commands, and then where there's seven guys. I mean, this, this is a list of names of what not to name your child here. Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Now, if some of you are like, well, oh, you know what? We were really thinking about naming our son Carcass. Hey, more power to you. That's just not going to play out well on the playground, okay? But these are seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asherah. So the king goes to them. And look at what he says in verse 11. Bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown. Why? In order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. For the last six months and for the last week, he's been showing off all his goods and all his wares. Why stop now? Go get my wife. But Queen Vashti, having some shred of dignity in verse 12, refuses to come. She refuses to be ogled by the king and a bunch of his drunk advisors. Not playing that game. And so she refuses. And you look at the end of verse twelve. At this the king became enraged, and his and his anger burned within him. And he begins to lash out. And so in verse 13, the king said to the wise men who, uh, which you're going to see in short order, these guys are anything but wise, uh, who knew the time he brings these guys in. They're listed there in verse 14. and verse 15, he says this, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ashuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? What are we going to do with this woman? What do you guys think? What are we going to do with her? And so Memucan is like, hey, I got an idea. And notice just the -the over-the-top ridiculousness of what he says in verse 16. Here's where he starts. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ashurus. She's offended the entire kingdom. What? He goes on and explains what he means. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ashuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble woman of Persian media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. You have a group of very insecure men sitting around the table making a decision right now, don't you? I mean, seriously. You have a domestic matter that has now become a state issue. That's what's happening here. And so this wrath that, 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 that comes out. And so then notice, here's this conclusion in verse 19. Here's what we should do about this. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. The she is never again to come before King Ashuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. I mean, this is just a stupid idea. But look at verse 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. They send letters out to all the provinces telling them of what has happened. You have the king's excess and pomp. You have his unjustified wrath. And he's seeking the favor of man. He didn't get what he wanted. So what does he do? Like a child, he throws a hissy fit. It's like a two-year-old with a rattle. That's what this feels like. And there's this striking irony that he is searching for favor among men and he doesn't even have it in his own home. And so his wrath comes forward. And as if the bad ideas, as if those things weren't enough, I mean, the bad ideas just keep coming. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ashwares had abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, you might read that and might go, that's a really odd statement. Why would the author say it that way? What what are they getting at? Well, I I didn't know this until just this week, but I learned this in my studies this week, that it wasn't uncommon um, in, in the Persian royal courts and even other royal courts that what would happen is the king and his advisors would get together and they would do just like what had happened here. They would get sloppy drunk. And they would make state decisions or decisions that, that, that were um, uh, would have their bearings among the state. And then, of course, they would have scribes in there that would write down what it is that they were doing. Then they would sober up, bring those guys back in and go, hey, what do we decide? And they would decide whether or not it was a good idea. And the idea was, well, you know, if we get drunk, we're, we're not going to be uh, we're going to be completely uninhibited and we'll just be free and honest with each other. You would like to think that he'd be sitting there going, ah, this was a bad idea. But that's not where he arrived. Right? Because you see the king's lust. And again, all about seeking favor for himself. In verse 2, the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So the solution, right, the solution to this just horrible idea was, let's go find a really good-looking gal who pleases you sexually and will make her king or queen. That's the plan. That's how this is the most powerful nation on the planet at this time. That's how we're going to find our queen. See, it's rooted in the king's lust. It's all about finding fulfillment and satisfaction for himself. It's, It's about what he wants. And if you go down to verses... Um, 12 through 14 of chapter 2, it kind of it walks you through the process and really the sordid details in which this would happen. And they gathered these women up and they would give them these different um, beauty treatments and, and they would teach them various etiquette and then they would send them in to the king. And he'd, he'd do whatever he wanted uh, that night. He would send them out in the morning and those women would be placed in the king's harem for the rest of their lives unless the king chose to summon them again. The king's lust went all around seeking the favor of man and really himself. And unless you think, I mean, I don't think there's really any delusion here, but lest you think or even think that there's some kind of connection to like this Disney fairy tale princess thing going on. These are women who are stripped from their homes, stripped from their families, stripped from their hopes and dreams, and are essentially made whores for the king's desire and pleasure. And for all but one of them, they would spend the rest of their life in the king's harem. In fact, some commentators described the sentiment that played out in this day much more similar to widowhood than it was to marriage, which I think is a fair statement. And all of this, all of this, all of this centering around the king, all the favor, all the power, all the prominence, all the position that he'd been given, leveraged for his personal desires, personal preference, his wants, what, what worked for him. There's no concern for others. There's no concern for God, for God's will, God's purposes, or any of that. He is seeking the man, and he's doing so for his own personal pleasure. And you have King Asherah, and he's contrasted with who we're introduced to here, starting in verse 5. And so the author now introduces us first to Mordecai, and then secondly to Esther. Verse 5 says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's the line of King Saul, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And here's how we begin to see her connection to this story in chapter one. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai. Who had charge of the women. Now notice verse 9. This is really interesting because we're going to see this three different times here in the next few verses. It says that the young woman pleased him, Haggai, hey, and then this phrase, won his favor. She won his favor. So she, she comes in. She, she is pleasing to him. She wins favor with him. And then notice the advantage that is instantly given to her. He quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So these young women given to Esther are the ones that were helping her with her beauty treatments and all the other things that are going on. Verse 10, we're told, this is really setting up the next couple of weeks and the next number of chapters in the story, that Esther had not made known that she was Jewish, right? Uh, Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We've already talked about verse 12 through 14 in the process of what it would be to go into the king. Verse 15, when, that, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, uh, who had charge of the women, advised. See, here's the second time we see this phrase. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the, his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she, here it is the third time, won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And with Asherah, you have an individual who's seeking the favor of man. And with Esther, what you see in her character is that she is winning favor through God. She is winning favor, but it is coming through the person of God. That's what's happening. In fact, not once, not twice, but three times. Verse 9, verse 15, verse 17. She's winning favor with Haggai. Right. The the, the guy who's over this, she's winning favor just in a generic sense with all who saw her in verse 15. And then in a more specific sense and, and a much more profound sense with the king in verse 17. She's winning favor. And the favor that's being won is being won through the person of God. Now, do not, do not, do not think for a moment that Esther's pulling this off on her own. Okay, Because nowhere in here are they saying that she is so winsome or she's so dynamic or she's got this great personality. They're not saying any of that, are they? She's winning favor. It's God who's doing this, it's God who's bringing her favor in her endeavors. It's, it's so eerily similar to Joseph's story. He's sold into slavery, ends up at Potiphar's house, and he wins favor. fact Moses in writing Genesis is much more explicit about that God was showing favor to Joseph and comes to be in charge of Potiphar's house and of course we all know falsely accused thrown into prison and he's not in prison long before what happens he starts to win favor amongst the guards and the other prisoners and then the the baker and the cupbearer those knuckleheads right they forget about him two years later Pharaoh's Uh, perplexed by this dream and oh yeah hey there's this guy you should really have him uh, listen to this and then it's not that long later that joseph's second in command the same way that god was granting favor to joseph god is granting esther favor and listen he's doing it for a specific reason because what is clear as you read through the book of esther is that her coming to the position of queen is part of god's providential care and protection for his people this was never, ever, ever about Esther. This was always, always, always about ultimately God and his people. And so make note of this. When God grants us favor with others, he does so to accomplish his purposes in the world. When God grants you favor, it's not for your personal benefit. Now, now, in a peripheral sense, that might happen but that is never the primary reason that God does it. God grants us favor ultimately for his missional purposes. And so you have contrasted these two characters. King Asherah seeking the favor of man. What can I get from it? How can I leverage it? Uh, really, it's just a form of using people to get what you want. And then you have Esther who is winning favor through God and being set up to accomplish God's missional purposes. Let's take the remainder of our time and do this. Let's connect this story now to your life and to my life. I mean, what does this mean for us? Because I don't know about you, I'm highly suspicious that in, in my day and age, we're going to see something like this play out in the United States. I don't see us moving to a monarchy um, I don't see us having a king uh, or a queen and certainly not a king doing something like this. But, you know, I've been wrong on other things. So maybe just maybe this is prophetic and 10 years from now, I'll be like, well, hey, I said this 10 years ago, but check it out. Look, the book of Esther speaks into this. Isn't that great? Um, I doubt it. And so in one sense, we can look at this and go, well, what bearing does this have on my life? How does this speak into my life? What, what, what would this say to me? And I would actually suggest to you an awful lot. In fact, here five. Five points, applications, call them whatever you want, principles, five things that I want to highlight here from the book of Esther 1 and 2 in terms of what does this mean for us. First of all, I think it begs for each and every one of us to ask this question, what favor am I seeking? Right? We've had the contrast of King Asherah and Queen Esther and the favor that they were after. I think we have to ask of ourselves, what favor am I seeking? Am I seeking the favor of man or am I seeking the favor of God? Right, what the king wanted, he wanted for himself. It was about him and, and, and what it did for him. What Esther wanted was about God and his purposes. How God worked in Esther's life was about, uh, it was about fulfilling God's purposes. And so ask yourself right now here in this moment, not your spouse, not your children, not your parents. Ask yourself. Whose favor am I seeking? Am I seeking the favor of man or am I seeking the favor of God? Now, certainly connected to that, maybe as a follow-up to that, I think we have to ask this second question. What am I doing with the favor entrusted to me? What am I doing? What are you doing? What are we doing with the favor that God has entrusted to us? Now, this is a stewardship issue. In every single person's life, God has given you areas or spheres of influence or favor that God has granted to you for a specific purpose. Everyone, everyone has an area, if not areas of favor that God has given to you. You might be in a position of leadership at, job, at your job or at school or in the community. You might have a platform Uh, that allows you to speak into things, you might be the trusted advisor uh, of someone who has great reach uh, within our society or within our community. You might um, have certain talents that that as you are growing up um, or as you move into the workplace or in the workplace that God is going to use to leverage for his kingdom, uh, you might be given resources to be able to accomplish something. Every single person, God has entrusted favor to you For a purpose. My question for you is: what are you doing with it? What are you doing with that? See, later in the book of Esther, Esther's going to forget why God put her there, and she's going to think that she can hide behind the throne and be spared from the wrath that was um, racing down upon the rest of the Jewish people. And Mordecai is going to set her straight and he's going to remind her why she's there. I wonder for how many of us do you need a reminder of the favor that God has granted in your life, of the position that he's put you in and the platform that he's given you, the resources that he's entrusted to you? What am I doing with the favor that's been entrusted to me? Maybe, maybe, maybe the question you need to be asked is do you know that you're going to be held accountable? For what God has entrusted to your care. And I said this is a stewardship issue. Stewardship touches every single part of your life. So often when we talk about stewardship, we want to get really narrow and we want to talk about money. And yes, money is certainly a part of stewardship. But that is not the whole of stewardship. Stewardship is comprehensive in your life and in mine. So while, yes, we are stewards of money, we're also stewards of time. We're also stewards of our possessions and our resources, of our talents and our gifts. You're a steward of your marriage. You're a steward, uh, steward of your children if you have children. You're a steward of your career, of your intellect. I may go on and on and on, but you get the point. You're a steward of everything that God has entrusted to you. And maybe for some of us, we need to be reminded here this morning that God is going to ask us about all of these things that he's entrusted to our care with respect to how they were used for the kingdom. And so for you, when you think about the particular favor that God has given to you, are you leveraging that for his purposes or are you leveraging that for your own personal benefit and gain? And are you aware God will ask you to account for. For that, God's favor is meant to be a source of blessing to others that will ultimately point us to God. And that is already being worked out in the book of Esther. What favor am I seeking? What am I doing with the favor that's entrusted me? Here's the third thing, a little bit of a shift here. It's the reminder for us that the world has not changed and sin is still the issue. The world has not changed, and sin is still the issue and is shocking. Honestly, as shocking as parts of this story are, the the truth is you and I do not have to look very far to find similar stories and similar accounts like the one that we found in Esther. In fact, um, I found this. This is from 2005, okay? So we're just a decade removed from this. This is from an article written about the king of Swaziland. And it says this: says more than fifty thousand bare-breasted virgins vied to become the king of Swaziland. Check this out: thirteenth wife on Monday, in a ceremony which critics say ill befits, Ill befits a country with the world's highest HIV/AIDS rate. King Maswati, the third sub-Saharan Africa's last absolute monarch, arrived dressed in a leopard-skin loincloth. To watch the re-dance ceremony, which he has used since 1999 to pluck new brides from the girls dressed in little more than beaded, beaded mini-skirts. And so it talks about how these girls would sing tributes and do these dances and all these other stuff in the hope of catching the eye of the king. That was this century. That, 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 that's recent. Further, further... Um, Inasmuch as we want to look at Esther or maybe even look at that and be like, well, you know, that, that's barbaric or that's primitive. All right, fine. I'll concede that for a moment. Let's just unpack our own culture and our own society for a moment. You tell me whether or not we're any different or any better. Because it's our society, it's our generations, it's our people That have proliferated in a scale that we haven't even flirted with prior to this. The sale of preteen and teen girls for the sex slave industry. It's our generation that does child pornography like no other generation could even dream of. It's our generation. It's our country. We'll murder a million babies this year. So you can tell me all you want about how primitive or barbaric or how uh, uneducated they were. We're no different. We talk all we want about how much we've if we've really advanced, don't you think we'd move beyond some of these things? And yet, not only have we not moved beyond them, I think of anything, we've gone backwards because here's the reality. Sin is still the issue. It's the issue that plagues you. It's the issue that plagues me. It's the issue that plagues all of us. And all Esther is, is just another story in a long line of stories that bears out the reality. Sin is the issue. It always has been. It always will be. Now, now, sin might be manifested in different ways. That's just the symptom. The root issue is still what corrupts your heart and my heart. Sin is still the issue. But, thank God for this, but... Inasmuch as the world has not changed and sin is still the issue, here's the fourth thing. God has not changed and he is still at work. I mean, think about this story for a minute. God uses a wicked king who in a drunken stupor demands something ridiculous of his wife, who rejects that and refuses to do so. And then the foolishness of his wise men institute this policy that is just purely idiotic. And it leads to this incredibly sordid plan to gather up all these young girls and strip them from the life that they had hoped and longed for. There's nothing good in what I just said. And yet God is going to accomplish some incredibly good things because of the wickedness of the king and his men. See, in a redemptive sense, God will make something good come out of something that was simply not good. And the same God, hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this, loved ones. The same God who's at work in Esther redeeming these things in their day and in their lives is the same God who's at work today in your life and in my life redeeming all of the brokenness and the wickedness that we live in. And there is hope for us because God has not changed and he is still at work. Here's the final thing. This story, this story is a picture of the gospel. This story is a picture of the gospel. And when, when I say gospel, if you're like, what does that word mean? The gospel is, is in, in its purest sense, it's the good news of Jesus. It's, it's understanding that Jesus took our place on the cross. And instead of you and I being separated from God because of our sin, that God was, uh, Jesus was separated from God in your place and in my place, so that we could be reconciled and restored and made right with God. And the story of the gospel is how God came and rescued us, his people. Okay, so how is this story a picture of the gospel? There's not even a reference to God in this story. Here's how. Because God is using horrendous circumstances, and he's using it for his good and his glory. How is that any different than what God does with sin through the person of Jesus? Sin is heinous and wicked and evil, and yet in the midst of that reality, God is working good through the person of Jesus to restore us to himself. We talked about this when we were moving through the book of Habakkuk a few months ago, but remember, remember, the Old Testament leans forward to the cross. The Old Testament is leaning forward to the cross. It's pointing us to the cross. The story of Esther is no different. Winning favor. God is at work. Listen, listen, listen. God is at work in securing favor for his people to accomplish his purpose. And God is working. God is working out his good plan in your life today to accomplish his good purpose. And so, loved ones, let us be men. Let us be women who take the favor that God has granted to us, bestowed upon us, entrusted to us, and let us use it to accomplish his purpose. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about uh, the story, and God, this is such a sordid, perverted, twisted account. This is um, troubling on so many levels. And yet, God, and yet, it's profound because that's where you do your greatest work. It's in those situations that you show up an incredible power to make known and to reveal your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness, God, that you've spared us from your wrath and the consequence of sin. So God, I pray that as we think about this story, that, that we would look to be people that would, would, would seek to win your favor through what you're already doing. As opposed to attempting to win it for ourselves or seeking it for ourselves or to expend it upon ourselves. God, help us, God, help us that we would see what you've given to us, that we would understand its purposes in our life, and that we would leverage it ultimately for your kingdom and for the expanse of the gospel. So, Jesus, we thank you. We just pray.